Thank you, Steve. It's really great to be back and to be a part of a landmark recording. I can't believe it. I try not to sing too loud so I wouldn't throw all the music off, but uh, those are great songs. And it's great to see Steve leading worship again. I really enjoyed uh, being under his leadership when I was in the congregation and he was up front. And I know that many of you have grown to love him so much and appreciate the wonderful ministry of Master's College. I am really thrilled to be here just for a brief time. I'll be back in January. I guess they've got a whole pile of uh, preachers coming in and Steve Camp, and we're going to have a great time then and looking forward to the opportunity to be with you at that time. Steve was trying to outguess me. He was figuring I would preach on prayer. Uh, that is one of my ministry passions, and I probably will do that in January, not to disappoint you. So, uh, But today I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curve, a subject that you probably wouldn't expect, but one that I think will certainly be fitting. Some of you, by the way, don't recognize me. Uh, since I was last here, I decided to part my hair down the middle, and uh, it's quite a wide part, about three or four inches wide, but I figured I could move it down on the side much further, so I decided to go natural, and now the wind blows, and I'm aerodynamic, and it feels uh, really good and freeing, and uh, so those of you who are uh, follically challenged, some of you men, it's not that bad, okay? It really isn't. Uh, my self-image is still stable, and uh, I'm okay. My wife still loves me. My kids make fun of me. But other than that, uh, we have a good time. I mentioned today I wanted to be uh, kind of uh, very real with you on a subject matter that may be other than what you would expect. I guess the temptation is to come to a place like this and uh, speak on a subject that everyone will be uh, perhaps appreciative of or entertained by so that you can get asked back and uh, speak again because it is a privilege to be at a place like the Master's College. Today I want to just uh, kind of do a gut check with all of us on a, an issue that I think is so important. It's very easy to sometimes uh, be in a setting and to change a little bit of your approach just to uh, go over well. It reminds me of a story of a young man. He was a seminary graduate, not quite yet married. Uh, in fact, not even close to being married, still uh, looking for someone. But he was on his way to another city where he was applying for a staff job. And as he uh, got onto the plane and sat down uh, there on the window, uh, he was wondering, you know, who was going to come on the plane. And sure enough, he looked up and this beautiful blonde came walking down the middle aisle. I mean, she was gorgeous. And uh, his heart started beating rapidly. And sure enough, she came and sat down right next to him, in the seat next to him in the plane. And uh, he was really getting excited at this point. And then halfway into the flight, she opens her Bible. And he said, yes, there is a God in heaven. And uh, so they continued to converse. And uh, finally, he got real brave. And he asked her, what kind, of, what kind of guys do you really like? She says, well, you know, that's an interesting question. She says, a while back, I, I dated a, a Native American, an Indian fellow. And he was so nice, so rugged, so strong. Uh, seemingly so in touch with his heritage, and we had a great time. I, I like a, a Native Americans. But she said, you know, I dated a Christian Jewish fellow one time as well, and boy, we had a great time. He knew the Old Testament, and he was grounded, and, and uh, had a knack for making money, you know, and uh, yet he was uh, really wise. I kind of like those Jewish guys. She says, but you know, come to think of it, I, I guess when I really would have to be honest and tell you that I just like good old boys. You know those country boys, they're down home and easy to get to know and cordial and polite. And he says, oh, that's very interesting. And so a moment later she says, by the way, what did you say your name was? He said, oh, my name? He said, well, my name is Geronimo Steinbeck, but most people just call me Bubba. And so <laughs> stretched it a little bit, didn't he? Um, well, I'm not going to give you a Geronimo Steinbeck sermon. I'm going to be very honest and authentic with you. In our church, we are experiencing, uh, through the avenue of prayer, Steve, some real visitations of God's Spirit. 
Uh, we have uh, initiated some three-and-a-half-day prayer summits with the people in our church, and it's kind of hard to believe, but for three-and-a-half days we will go away with no agenda other than praise and worship. People have a Bible, a hymnal, a song, uh, and chorus book, and we will uh, just worship the Lord and His attributes, and it's three-and-a-half days with no agenda of worship. But worship, which is the revelation of God, also involves response to God. And we have seen lives literally changed in three and a half days of prayer and worship. People who have come to terms with sin in their life, who have dealt with issues that are very deep, that counseling and other strategies couldn't seem to get to. People have literally literally been transformed. Back in August, we had a prayer summit with 80 men for three and a half days. And one issue surfaced that probably shocked me, at least in terms of the level at which it surfaced. The number of men who are literally enslaved to an area of sin, and women as well, that is being promoted throughout our society. In fact, it's an issue that literally has a grip on the juggler of our country. And it's an issue that, as I thought about coming here, I felt I should address, if for no other reason than in a preventive way, but also for some of you who may be struggling with it as well. In our church there in Sacramento, I've been in the midst of a series entitled, Making Sense of the Moral Maze. Because our country's lost in a moral maze, but particularly today, I want to address the subject of pornography with the subtitle of Just One Look, That's All It Took. Some of you heard the commercial, Just One Look, That's All It Took. The more you look, the more you like it. What was that, Toyota or Mazda or somebody? Well, today I want to talk about that subject as well. And I want you to take your Bible and I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. This is no doubt the landmark passage from the New Testament in which Jesus addresses the connection between what you see and how it affects your heart, particularly as it relates to the subject of lust. And so today, as we look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, I'll ask you to follow along as I read aloud these very important verses. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 27, says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. I begin with the story this morning, the testimony of a man who perhaps like many of you here today, and certainly many in our society, he struggled with pornography. In his own words in an interview, he said this, basically, I was a normal person. I had good friends. I lived a normal life, except for one small but very potent and very destructive segment that I kept very, very secret. Tracing his own involvement in pornography, he goes on to reflect on his childhood. He says, I grew up in a wonderful home with two dedicated and loving Christian parents. We regularly attended church. There was no gambling, no smoking, no drinking, no fighting in the home, perhaps much like the homes of some of you. He says, but as a young boy of 12 or 13, I encountered softcore pornography outside the home, in the local grocery store and drugstore. From time to time, time, I'd come across a pornographic book in someone's trash that was harder, more graphic, more explicit. The most damaging kind of pornography, he says, involves sexual violence. He goes on to talk about the wedding of those two forces, as I know too well, brings about behavior that is just too horrible to describe. He says, what scares and appalls me is what I see on cable TV. 
The stuff that's coming into homes today wouldn't have been shown in X-rated adult theaters 20 years ago. He says there's no question about it. The FBI's own study on serial homicides shows that most, the most common interest among serial killers is pornography. At least 28 women across the U.S. had been sexually assaulted and brutally murdered by this man. So the na- nation paid intense interest when the man suspected in these murders, Theodore Bundy, died in the electric chair in the Florida State Prison in Stark, Florida, on January 24, 1989. Most of you know of his story. A little closer to home, I share with you an uh, experience I had just a few weeks ago. The story is true. The name has been changed to protect the guilty, as you might say. A friend named Dave called me. I was getting ready to take my kids to school one weekday morning. He said, Daniel, this is Dave. I'd known Dave for almost 15 years. He was saved in junior high, went to a great church, became a part of a Christian college, very much like this one where I met him. We were involved together in a variety of ministries. In fact, Dave went with me to start a church in the Pacific Northwest with a team of people fresh out of college. I knew that Dave uh, was uh, walking with the Lord. We held him accountable many times in some uh, private discipleship sessions. But over the years, Dave went his way, I went mine. Dave, as he called, he says, Daniel, I need help. He said, I'm enslaved to pornography. I said, well, tell me about it. He says, well, it started up in Seattle about 10 years ago. I began to just purchase softcore pornography. Then it became hardcore. Then it became videos. He says, last night, I went over the deep end. I was with a prostitute. He said, I need help. I was about the fifth person he called. I immediately sent him some material. I've checked in with him several times. And if you would have asked me 15 years ago, could this have ever happened to Dave? I would have said, no way. But it's the power of sin, and it's the power of what it does in our lives each and every day. Pornography comes from two Greek words. The first word is porne, which means uh, something that is sold on the market cheaply. In the uh, Bible times, it had the idea of a harlot or a prostitute that was sold. Graphe, you know, means to write. So back in New Testament times, it was literally the idea of writing about harlots. Of course, that was the best that they could do before they developed uh, uh, the ability of taking photographs and publishing it on uh, highly slick and uh, well-put-together pieces of information in magazines. In our country, there are over a 1,000 theaters that show X-rated films, more than 15,000 adult bookstores. Adult bookstores outnumber McDonald's restaurants in the United States. We spend more on pornography in America than the annual sales of the Coca-Cola Corporation. And so you can see that it's become a great problem in our society. Most counselors call people sexually addicted who utilize pornography. They say that there are 15 million sex addicts in America today, and pornography is the sex compulsive tool of the trade. Obviously, you know that the half-naked human body is the number one marketing tool. Uh, The idea of pornographic discussion is the number one topic of most afternoon talk shows. They have linked pornography with rape, with abuse, with incest, with violence, with pedophilia. It is uh, based in organized crime and a lot of serial murders as well. The first exposure to pornography in the majority of men occurs between the ages of 13 and 15. In fact, Archibald Hart, one researcher, says that 91% of the men raised in a Christian home in his reports have been exposed to pornography. Almost 96% of those raised for part of their youth in a Christian home reported exposure, while 98% of those not raised in a religious home reported exposure. Now, the statistics aren't that different. But you obviously see this is a real problem among Christian men and in our society 
among Christian women as well. It happens as, as children often. That was my first exposure. I know as a kid with a friend of mine down the street who was not a Christian. Stephen Annie Chapman wrote a song that uh, perhaps captures that first exposure for many of us. It was a song entitled, Play, Boy, Play. It goes like this. She said, little boy, today while dad's at work, well, go see my friend. Go put on your shirt. He said, while we're there, mama, what can I do? She said, oh, I know they have a little boy just like you, and you can play boy play. Play little boy play. It'll be a quick way for you to spend your day. You can play boy play. Two mamas talking, two busy boys, and it wasn't long they got tired of their toys. My daddy hides some pictures, and I found them before. Two innocent eyes hide behind the door where they have play, boy, play. Play, little boy, play. And the devil does his part to steal another young heart with play, boy, play. That night, as Mama kissed him and they said his prayers, he wanted to tell her, but he was too scared. She said, by the way, did you like your new friend? Maybe real soon we'll go back again. Or you can play, boy, play. Just play, little boy, play. How could she have known what sorrow was sown with play, Boy, play. Have mercy, O Lord, on all the boys of this world who have played boy, play. And have mercy, O Lord, on all the dads of this world who have played boy, play. The power of the one look Jesus addresses here in Matthew chapter 5. The story is told of seven men who were shipwrecked and left drifting aimlessly on an ocean. As the days pass under the scorching sun, their rations of food and fresh water give out. The men grow deliriously thirsty. One night while the others are asleep, one man ignores all of the previous warnings and he gulps down some salt water. He quickly dies. You see, ocean water contains seven times more salt than the human body can safely ingest. And drinking it, a person dehydrates because his kidneys demand extra water to flush the overload of salt. The more salt water someone drinks, the thirstier he gets and he actually dies of thirst. And you see, that one look is much like it. It just takes that one look to create in us a sinful thirst for that which will not satisfy and will eventually lead to our own spiritual demise. So I want us to look at this passage very briefly this morning. And you'll see behind me an outline, and you see it number there. You've got a blank. You can fill it in if you're taking notes. I want us to look, first of all, what Jesus said about the avenue of the one look. Look with me, if you will, at verses 27 and 28. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. I want you to see that the avenue, he notes the word, look. It's the eye gate. And perhaps you've heard this from John or others. What goes into the eyes is imprinted, obviously, on the mind. What is on the mind becomes a thought and sometimes a fixation. That thought then is fueled by the power of our imagination, which you know is tremendously powerful. And that imagination then moves your emotions, and that emotion moves your will, and that will results in action, and that action results in habit, and that habit in character, and that character in a destiny. So in our society, there's no doubt that the devil knows the power of the one look, the avenue of the eye gate through which amazing images come in and poison our soul. In our society, we know that it's growing at an increasing rate. Now pornography is not only on dial-a-porn through 900 lines. Uh, in 1991, the sales reached 975 million in America. We know that on uh, network computer systems, people are involved in sex talk lines. Some five to 700 different lines are now up and running. 
in one of our uh, periodicals in Sacramento, they're talking now about uh, virtual reality, and now they call it virtual sex, called Reach Out and Almost Touch Someone, whereby pretty soon people are going to be putting on these goggles, much like uh, these computer-generated three-dimensional training uh, uh, apparatus that the Air Force uses to train their pilots, when people will see full-color, three-dimensional sound will be piped into their ears, and they'll have a little suit that will have tiny vibrators all around it, and people will be involved in virtual sex, it's called. Society knows that, and they are targeting young people and the people that you'll be ministering to someday with this kind of stuff. One man said it this way, virtual reality is going to rock our world in a way that few people can imagine. It won't merely replace TV, it will eat it alive. I say all that to simply tell you that we must be realistically understanding of the kinds of temptation. Some of you say, Daniel, I don't have a problem with this. Why? Are you? Because you're going to be ministering to people who do. You're going to have to understand the kind of pain, the kind of struggle, the kind of enslavement that comes into people's lives in a society that is aggressively bombarding them through the eye gate. Now, biblically, that's nothing new. Let me just give you a few references. First of all, Genesis 3.6, the original sin. Notice what it says. In fact, read it with me. Let's read that aloud together, Genesis 3.6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Notice the first thing. When she what? When she saw. You see, it was the eye gate that got even trouble. It was the power of the eye gate to move the mind, to move the imagination, to move the will, and to allow deception to come in. There's another instance in Genesis 34, too. When Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, it says he was the prince of the land, and he saw her that was Dinah, one of the daughters of Jacob, and he took her and lay with her by force. Where did it begin? It began when he what? He saw her. It was the eye gate again. Also in Genesis 39, 7. It talks about Potiphar's wife and Joseph. You remember the story. And it says there, it came about that these events that his master, that the, after these events that his master's wife did what? She looked with desire at Joseph. And she said, lie with me. You remember David, 2 Samuel 11, 2. And when evening came, David arose from his bed, walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he what? He saw a woman bathing. Again, the woman was very beautiful in appearance. First Peter talks about this society that we live in in this way. It says, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Again, it is the eye gate that Peter focuses on that becomes the avenue through which adultery takes root in the heart. And even in Proverbs, we are reminded of this passage, let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. And so the power of what comes into our eyes that affects our heart it's clearly the thing that Jesus is elaborating on here in Matthew chapter 5. The avenue of the eye gate to poison the soul if we allow ourselves to succumb to that temptation. Now I want you to see, secondly, the ambition of that one look. Notice verse 28. He not only looks on a woman, but he looks on a woman to do what? To lust for her. There's an ambition in his heart, and that is the ambition of lust. The purpose of the look is lust. Lust literally means desire, the desire to have, the desire to rule over. Proverbs 6.25 warns us, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her catch you with her eyelids. 
Obviously, it's the idea of looking with desire, of looking in order to lust. And again, in our society, that is the whole goal of the pornography industry. They put it right there in magazine racks. You go look for a Newsweek, and suddenly you find all of these things that are there to stimulate that ambition in your heart. And so Jesus is saying here the desire, the ambition, is lust. That's the difference, by the way, between a glance and a gaze. You can't help the things you glance at, can you? But you can't help the things you gaze on. It's the difference between a, a bird landing on your head and you allowing it to build a nest. Now, I wouldn't have much to work with in my case, obviously, so I'm safe. But it's the idea of, of not letting that bird build a nest in your hair. And again, Jesus is talking about this desire to lust, the look that is driven by the ambition of lust. Now, thirdly, he makes an assertion about this one look. Look at verse 28. He says, if you have done that, what? You have committed adultery with her already in your heart. He says, but I say this to you. It's already an issue of the heart. Jesus always had a higher standard. And it was never one of externals, by the way. It was always internal, wasn't it? Jesus says it's not just the act, it's the heart. As C.S. Lewis says, if you look upon ham and eggs to lust, you've already committed breakfast in your heart. Same idea. It's the difference between looking and, and having it. Eating it, tasting it, enjoying it. And Jesus is saying, if you have looked beyond just the glance and it has become a gaze and your purpose is to cultivate in your heart an evil imagination, as far as God is concerned, you have already committed the act. Because in your heart, if given the opportunity, if you knew you wouldn't get caught, you might do it. Jesus says, it's a serious thing. I don't want us to park thirdly, or rather fourthly, on the approach. Look at verses 29 and 30. And these are some pretty radical verses. Jesus speaks in hyperbole, in an exaggerated sense, to give an illustration of the kind of attitude it takes in your heart, and in my heart, and in the hearts of those that someday I guarantee you'll be counseling or praying with or trying to help in terms of how they deal with the grip that pornography so easily can have in someone's life. What is the approach he says here? Notice, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. Throw it from you. For it is better for one of the parts of your body to perish than your whole body. And he says, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. Throw it from you. And again, he says, it's better to lose that one part than to lose the whole. Jesus says it takes radical measures. He doesn't say, if your eye makes you stumble, put on sunglasses so it won't feel so bad. He doesn't say, if your right hand makes you stumble, wrap it in an ace bandage. No. He says, do radical surgery. As you know, the right eye represented the highest and best of a person's faculties. It represented his best vision, and the right hand represented his best skills. The point is, we should be willing to give up anything and everything. We should be willing to deal with aggressiveness, with any avenue, with any temptation, which, with any grip that it may have in our heart. It's like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, I buffet my body, I make it my slave, lest after having what? Preached to others, I become disqualified. And so Jesus speaks very clearly about this, the assertion of the one look. Now let me give you some practical things about how to deal with it, how to do that. How do I pluck out the right eye in that sense? How do I cut off the right hand? How do I deal with the grip of any sin, but particularly pornographic and lustful sin in my life? Well, number one, you have to confront the cause. Confront the cause. And that cause, obviously, is the heart. You see, Jesus wasn't saying that because you looked, you've lusted. He's saying because you have a heart of lust, you look. 
And he's saying it's not just the act, it is the heart. It is what's going on where no one else sees. And Jesus is telling us to deal radically with our heart, to ask the hard questions, to do a gut check as to why is it that I do what I do and how can I deal with it at the deepest possible level. Sometimes we have to ask ourselves a hard question, am I really even a believer if I desire these kinds of things? Or do I have a low view of God? Or, or is there a sense of emptiness and loneliness that is there because I'm not walking with Christ? Or is there some kind of bitterness or anger that I'm expressing in this aberrant behavior? The good news is God has given us all the power we need to deal with it. I'm going to ask you to read one more, sec- one more verse aloud with me. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. We've got it there. Let's read that together. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, what's obvious in that passage? You know that passage. What's obvious is you can't deal with this problem at a human level. It's not just a matter, although it is important, we'll talk about it in just a moment, to get all that stuff out of your life, circumstantially. But what is very clear, it must be dealt with with spiritual weapons. There is supernatural power available to us to exercise from our heart that lustful sense of destruction. What are some of those weapons? You know them. I don't have to reiterate this. Obviously, the power of prayer, the power of prayer and fasting. Some of you who have this struggle, I ask you, how long has it been since you prayed and fasted and literally sought God in the earnestness of your soul, not only breaking the routines of physical enjoyment through food, but learning to allow God to deal with that passionate desire for physical expression through lust and even through pornography. Again, in our prayer summits, I referenced it at the very beginning. It's amazing to see what the power of prayer has done. Men coming alongside men, praying for them, holding them accountable, consistently being involved in calling upon God and His power to invade the secret chambers of the heart and to expose those things which keep one in defeat. And then obviously the power of the Word of God. The good book is the only thing that will keep you from the one look. All right, It's really that simple. Are you hiding God's Word in your heart? The most important sex organ you have is your mind. That's the line of scrimmage. And if you know football, you know whoever controls the line of scrimmage controls what? They control the game. Your mind is so important. That's where Proverbs 7.2 says, Keep my commandments and live and my teachings as the apple of your eye. The Word of God constantly in front of you. The apple of your eye means it is the centerpiece of your vision. It is at the very focal point of where you are looking and what you are doing and what you are gazing upon. If you're not memorizing God's Word on a consistent basis, not to fulfill a requirement for a class, but in order to have your own heart transformed by the renewing of the mind, then you, my friend, need to discover that power in your own life. But very practically and finally, I urge you to cleanse your circumstances. Cleanse the the trappings of your life in a very practical way. And let me give you some very specific things. Number one, I've already said this, but it requires repenting of your sin before God. Before you deal with the external, you must deal with the internal. Repent of your sin before God. The need, as David did, to be honest with yourself and to be totally transparent before Him and to tell Him and to turn from that in your heart. And then secondly, you need to begin to remove all avenues of temptation. 
The Bible says it very clearly. Romans 13, 14, make no provision for the flesh. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from every form of evil. I love the way Job said it in Job 31.1. You've probably read it before. He said this, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Job said, I've made a commitment not to allow my eyes to gaze upon that which will cause me to stumble. In our family, this may sound very crazy, my wife and I, we have two boys, ages 10 and 8, have agreed not to let anything in our home that would potentially cause them to stumble. So my wife went through, you'll think this is crazy. But she went into Sears catalog, J.C. Penney's catalogs. She threw out a bunch of other catalogs. But she ripped out all of the lingerie and the underwear. Now, you see, Daniel, that is so corny. No, it's not. Because you never know the kind of temptation. In the very simplest of things, things you, that some of you gals wouldn't think about because you don't understand these weird guys who can look at some and their blood pressure boils. But, but it is that way. And the need to make a covenant not to look upon anything. When I checked into the hotel over here in town the, last night, the first thing I told the guy, would you please block all of the pay television channels? That one little point. And it just takes one to make you stumble. And it involves the need to indeed remove all the temptations. The magazines, the television, whatever it is. And again, you may be stronger than others and some of you may be weaker, but the need in your own heart is to remove it. Thirdly, rehearse the way of escape. Rehearse the way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says clearly, God has given us a way of escape. We don't have to follow this temptation, but have you rehearsed it? Most men spend more time planning a meeting than they do planning their morality. I was reading on the plane on the way up here, a book named Point Man by Steve Farrar. And he advocates we must deal with lust just like Dick Butkus did, the linebacker. We must be mean and we must be prepared and we must be aggressive and we must plan the way in which we are going to leave. So when you think about going into a, a store that has it, in your mind, plan, how am I going to deal with that? I'm going to go in. If I see it, I may leave. If I see it, I'm going to turn away. If I see it, I'm going to tell the guy I don't appreciate it. But planning the way of escape when it comes. Fourthly, we must reinforce our commitment through accountability. Read with me James 5.16. Would you again read this one aloud as we look at James 5.16? It says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. There's one thing I would urge you to do as a beginning place, that is to find someone and to ask for help. To tell them of your need. To tell them of your problem to ask for their prayer, to confess your faults, to confess your weakness, to confess your sin. I guarantee you there is power in prayer. And so many times we have dealt with the areas of sexual sin in the church with this attitude of denial. It, it doesn't exist. And so we're just going to put it over the corner. We're never going to talk about it. And so people who do have the struggle just kind of live on in shame and guilt and, and defeat because they don't know who to talk to. In our church, it's been amazing as God has helped us cultivate a, an attitude of honesty and humility and help toward holiness. We need to talk about it. I grew up in a family where it wasn't talked about. I'll shock you with a personal confession. I remember as a junior high, a friend of mine had a pornographic magazine, and he tore a page out and gave it to me. Well, this was the day and age in which beanbag chairs were really popular. Remember beanbag chairs? I had this ugly puke orange beanbag chair. And I took that one piece of pornography, unzipped it to three level, two, two layers of zippers, stuck it in the middle of all those styrofoam beans, and hid it there. Again, I left my forwarding address, didn't I? Stupid. 
My parents, about ten years later, told me that they knew it was there the whole time. I could have wrung their neck. I said, Mom, why didn't you confront me? Why didn't you? I needed help. Why did not you come to me and say, Daniel, we're aware of this. Let's talk about it. Let's be open. She said, well, you just don't talk about things like that. Friend, you better start talking about it. You better start getting help. You better start praying with someone. You better ask them to get into your face and be accountable with you in order to give to you that encouragement, that iron sharpening iron impact. And then fifthly, and very briefly, Restore righteousness through community action. I'm not a political advocate. I don't encourage you to go out and pick at abortion clinics. But I would say if there's one moral issue that I feel Christians are far too silent on, it's the issue of pornography. Ted Bundy said it this way. He said, well-meaning, decent people have condemned my behavior, but they walk past a magazine rack full of the very kinds of things that send young kids like me down the very same road, and they say nothing. I think it's time to start saying something. I think it's time to get involved. And I personally encourage you to check out things like the National Coalition Against Pornography in terms of what we can do. And then finally, and this is the big one as we close, that is this, consider the consequences of the problem. Jesus said, think about the consequence. If you don't deal with that right eye, if you don't deal with that right hand, think about what's going to happen. You're going to lose it all. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you can play with this little area of sin without it radically affecting your life. Don't think that you can mess with an area of sin like this without it destroying your very character. As I have read Proverbs chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, all of them continue to deal with the issue of sexual sin. As Solomon was writing to his son and to young men, He continually told them, don't go this way. Don't get involved. Why? Because here's what happens. You destroy yourself. You pierce yourself through. You go down the pathway of destruction, which you can never come back from, over and over and over again. Solomon said to him, consider the consequences. I'm going to wrap up today with something that God has put on my heart in the last few months. And I'm going to read for you 40 specific consequences of pornography. Because, you see, I think the great deception, and it was this way in the garden. You remember, Eve was told that that if you do this, you're going to violate your relationship with God. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there will be consequences. But what did the devil do? The serpent came in and he convinced her, oh, no, there's no consequences. Ignore the consequences. And I'm convinced... That a point at which self-deception comes into our life is the point at which we begin to lie to ourselves about the consequences of sin. Having counseled with dozens of men in the last few weeks, having literally prayed for scores and scores and scores of Christians over the last few years, God has really given to me some insight about what happens when I engage in that just one look What are the possible ramifications of that? Listen as I read these to you. And by the way, as you leave today, we've printed out all 40 of them for you. Because this will be a reality check whenever you face the temptation. Number one, I violate my love relationship with God through Christ who loved me, esteeming the passing pleasure of sin above the joy of intimacy with Christ. Obviously, sin is a violation of a relationship with God. That's the number one thing. Number two, I violate my identity as a child of God. 
who has been redeemed from the penalty and power of sin and has now been declared a holy one, a minister, a loving servant, a doer of good works. So I violate really who I am when I engage in this kind of sin. Number three, I cause God's grace toward me to be in vain as I shun its provision in place of selfish indulgence. Number four, I cultivate a pattern of deception as I am forced to lie and to cover up my behavior. And isn't that true? Every one of you here who have been involved in pornography have had to lie in order to cover up that sin. Number five, I become an adulterer in my heart. Number six, I become a solicitor of harlots in my heart. Number seven, I prove to be an unfaithful steward of the money God has entrusted to me. Number eight, I prove to be an unfaithful steward of my time, which is to be used for God's glory. Number nine, I actively promote and support the ongoing shame and destruction of the pornography industry as I purchase these items. Number ten, I turn a gift from God, that is sex, designed to be used in a loving and unselfish way into an experience of private self-indulgence. And because you're a new crowd and I don't want to shock you, I didn't even talk about the M word that is always an accompanying factor of pornography. But that's part of it. Number eleven, I become an idolater, worshiping at the altar of self, pleasure, and strange women, esteeming them as my gods. And if you were at Grace Community last night, John read a passage that clearly says it's idolatry is what it is. It's making something else your God, your object of allegiance and affection. Number twelve. Similarly, I turn my body, which was intended by God to be a temple of holy and sacrificial worship to Christ, into a temple of idols and a den of thieves. Number thirteen. I seriously damage my imagination, burning into it pictures and sensations that will rule over me in the future. Number fourteen, I develop an undisciplined character as I bring myself under the power of pornographic influence and will ultimately evidence this lack of discipline in other important areas, money, emotions, work, etc. You see, the point is very clear. If you cannot discipline yourself in your sexuality, that's a character issue. And you're going to lack discipline in other areas of your life. And so I've got to understand that. As one of the consequences. Fifteen, I seriously risk the loss of my Christian testimony as I could easily be discovered in the purchase or possession of pornography. And isn't that true? Going on. Number fifteen, number sixteen. I eventually harden my conscience as I live in constant duplicity and rationalization and I become insensitive to the voice and the direction of the Holy Spirit of God. Seventeen, I make myself increasingly vulnerable to interpersonal sin as my mind rehearses acts which could become reality over time. Number eighteen, I skew the proper biblical view of the sanctity of womanhood. Obviously, this is from the perspective of a male. Of womanhood as I turn women into sex, sex objects in the fantasies of my mind. Nineteen, similarly, I develop a mental pattern of relating to women not as persons of relational value and as objects of God's redeeming love, but as weak-willed persons to be controlled and manipulated by my unrestrained passion. Number twenty, I am increasingly out of touch with reality as I continue to live in an unreal world of fantasy, and the world of pornography is an unreal world. You know it and I know it. As one man said, it's a dream world. It is deceptive. It is beguiling. It is artificial. The sex of the pornographic trade is too slick, too wonderful, too ecstatic. He says sex in a real world is a mixture of tenderness and halitosis. Isn't that right? Love and fatigue, ecstasy and disappointment. When people live in a dream world, they begin to cast a disparaging eye at the flaws of the real world. They begin to seek a flawless fantasy world. Such make-believe is genuinely destructive to both true sexuality and true spirituality. Number 21, 
I reap unnecessary guilt and shame as I habitually engage in embarrassing acts which I feel I cannot divulge to others. 22. I continue to drink of waters that do not satisfy. As in the moments of temptation and passion, I forget that the unfolding of this sin always leaves me empty, despondent, and unsatisfied. Number 23. I develop the habit of easing my tensions, which is a common justification, through self-stimulation rather than the healthy means of physical exercise, spiritual disciplines, or other positive engagements. Number 24, I choose to become increasingly inept in authentic relationships and in communication with other people. People who engage in pornography become relational uh, lepers, relational handicaps, because they're living, again, in a fantasy world of relationship. Number 25, I fuel a carnal propensity toward controlling and manipulating people in order to achieve my own gratification. Number 26, I exchange my freedom in Christ for uh, for slavery to sin. 27, I lose the joy and power of the Christian life and become ineffective as a witness for Christ. 28, I squander many opportunities away, not only taking from others the ministry they may need, but taking from myself the eternal rewards that Christ offers for loving and faithful service. 29, I am living in serious denial regarding the causes of my habit, which may be rooted in unresolved hurt, unforgiveness, anger toward another person of the opposite sex. Number 30, I risk bringing shame and destruction to the rest of my family and to the body of Christ through my behavior. Number 31, I violate the trust and investment of spiritual leaders and mentors who have cared for me and given of themselves to me. And those, by the way, can all be true if you're single. 31 of them. Now, there's a few of you here who are married, so I give you a few. Uh, 32, if I am married, I violate my wife's trust in me as a faithful husband. 33, I violate my vow of marital purity and faithfulness to my wife. 34, I poison the normal and beautiful design of God for our marriage union, invading it, uh, invading that purity with fantasies of other women. 35, I ultimately communicate a painful feeling of rejection toward my wife because of her inability to measure up to the pornographic models who have been the object of my desire. Number 36, I have started down a pathway that could easily result in adultery. And then four more, if I have children. Number 37, if I have children, I put my children at risk in being exposed to any pornography that may be located in our family surroundings. 38, I subtly reproduce weak moral values in my children by virtue of the true weakened character that I have developed. 39, if I do try to instill strong moral conviction in my children in spite of my private behavior, I risk their discovery of my hypocrisy, possible embitterment toward me, and rejection of values of purity. And then number 40, I potentially reproduce all of the above, all 39, all of the above consequences in their lives. I don't know about you, friend. The next time you're standing there at that magazine stand, the next time something comes on television that you know you shouldn't watch, and it'll always catch you by surprise. The moment you begin to fuel in your imagination pornographic thoughts, I would say to you, consider the consequences. I close finally with a story that Paul Harvey tells. And maybe you've heard it before. Very interesting. It's the story of how Eskimos kill wolves. Listen. It's kind of grisly, and yet it gives us fresh insight into the self-destructive nature of lustful sin. 
First of all, the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood. And he allows it to, allows it to freeze in the cold air. And then he adds another layer of animal blood, and then another layer, and another, and another, until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. And when a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, he licks it, tasting the fresh frozen blood. The wolf then begins to lick faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. And so great becomes his craving for the blood that the wolf does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the knife blade upon his tongue. Nor does he recognize the instant at which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. You see, the fearful thing is that you can be consumed by your own lust in the same way. I'm convinced that the knife that the enemy has is the knife of lust. And I'm convinced that the blood he dips the knife in is pornography. And as you begin to take one lick, and then another, and then another, and then another, suddenly this lustful passion that Jesus speaks of causes your entire being to be consumed in the destruction of sin. Many of you have listened today attentively, and I appreciate it. It's not your problem. But it may be the problem of a roommate. I tell you, it will be the problem of someone to whom you'll be ministering in the years to come. And may God give us grace to realize that just one look, that's all it takes. May we guard our heart, guard our eyes, consider the cost, and live righteous and holy lives by the power and grace of Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me for prayer? Father, it's a heavy subject and not one about which it's easy to think of a lot of humorous stories or anecdotes because, Lord, we're dealing with a serious, serious enslaving sin. But, Father, I pray for the young people here at this campus. I pray, Lord, that You would be at work in their hearts to give them a desire for purity, a desire for You, and that, Father, You would give to them an awareness of the consequence of sin That, Lord, as the Bible speaks of the potential of us fooling ourselves, may we never fall victim to the enemy's ploy of getting us to take just that one lick, and then another, then another, until our entire soul is enslaved to the destructive force of lust and pornography. So, God, I pray that you'd cause the thoughts that we've shared today, the consequences, the considerations to weigh deeply upon the hearts and minds of guys and gals, teachers, professors, married, single, so that we, Lord, can be distinctively different in a society that is lost in a moral maze. May we be that salt and that light to show them the way because of the victory that you have brought into our hearts through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.
Thanks so much. You've been attentive. And I guess you're dismissed now. As you leave, if you want to copy those consequences, pick it up, keep it, read it, use it. God bless you. Thanks for being here.